Thanks for listening. For earlier access to these episodes, access to Ask Me Anything sessions, and extended breakdowns of historical and current events, please consider joining our rewarding premium community by clicking the link in the description to this episode. Really pleased to be joined this afternoon by NYU professor Scott Galloway, a prolific author, commentator, and one of the most interesting people out there. Welcome, Scott. Uh, it's always good to be with you, Steve. Thanks for having me. You bet. Um, Scott, you have written a lot of books. The first time that I met you, um, talked about one that I read that was uh, very impactful for me, The Algebra of Happiness, Notes on the Pursuit of Success, Love, and Meaning. Talk about that book for a second. Uh, well, well, thanks for that. That that is how we met, and you, you do something most men don't have the confidence to do. You came up to me and you were very complimentary right out of the gates and said that it had an impact on you. And uh, most men, including myself, or not, until recently, don't have the confidence to do that. We see generosity as or affection as or compliments as a zero sum game, and somehow if we say nice things to other people, especially as men, that it takes away from our success or masculinity. Anyway, in terms of the book, it's not my domain expertise. I don't have, I'm not certified in you know, social psychology or evolutionary anthropology. What I do have is um, I struggle, I struggle with um, uh, depression and anger. And I think about it a lot. And one Sunday night I was on a call with my sister and my sister just stopped me and said, why are you so pissed off all the time? You have less license to be pissed off than anybody I know. And I have blessings the size of Saturn and a mood the size of, you know, something much smaller. So I decided to do something about it. And the way I attack a problem is I try and learn a lot about it. I learned enough about it that I want to do a video on it. The video got a few million views and my agent said we should write a book on this. And I basically read every study I think that's been done on happiness and wrote out some best practices and weaved it with some personal anecdotes. But it's more an exploration of how I can just be a little bit more mindful and grateful and let my blessings wash over me and impact my mood. Let's talk about that for a second, because by any objective measure, uh, you are a super successful person. Um, why do you think it is that men have such difficulty going up to another man and saying, I admire you, I learned something from you, um, I got something out of this. This touched me in, in some type of way. I was talking about this to a uh, to a Gen Zer who I had on the podcast, and for good and for bad, uh, one of the things they've missed out on are the men that we knew in our lives, the World War II generation, the mm -hmm. generation that lived through the Depression. They are mostly gone now, but they were a distinct generation, unique from our parents, I think, but they were not the huggy, touchy, feely type mm -hmm. um, in the in the men of my experience. And, you know, I know even with my father, you know, we kind of do the stilted handshake, you know, and love each other very much. But what what do you think that 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 is about men our age? Because I, I do think we're a little bit different than some of the younger generations that are a, that are a bit more bit more open but where how do you see that where does that come from that kind of restriction well there's a lot of different dimensions to it some of it is 
instinctual, and that is our 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 instincts haven't caught up to to the reality of the situation. So most men, for ninety nine percent of our three hundred thousand years on this planet, most men logically presented other men presented a threat if you didn't know them. We were also competing for a limited amount of resources, food, mating opportunities. So we saw other men as our competition. Uh, so naturally, there's a there's a level of instinctive mistrust among anyone outside your immediate circle because a lot of interactions between men for much of our history involved one person taking the other's things or harming them. And so we're, we're naturally, just as men, a little bit mistrusting. We see our job as to uh, protect the people around us. So it's our job to be a little bit suspicious of other men who might have the same physical power as us and be more aggressive. Men are just naturally more violent. Uh, also, I think that in American society, affection, specifically affection, even if it's verbal and physical, was seen as either an indication that you were gay, which for most of my upbringing was seen as a negative, or that you were using it as a prelude to seduction for sex. And outside of those, it, and affection wasn't allowed outside of those two things for men. And not until recently have we decided that, okay, and I think there's been some good research that we're mammals and touch is really important and hugging and kissing and being in the presence of people. I mean, the nicest, literally the nicest moment of my life. I'm almost, and, I'm, and, and Stephen, I, I want to get your feedback here. My whole life, it's always been about more. I wanted more money. I wanted more relevance. I wanted to date more interesting and hotter women and then be with those people in more fabulous settings such that I could meet more interesting people and make more contacts and get more. It was always just more, fucking more. And the only time I've ever felt sort of sated, like the only moments I ever have where I'm like, okay, this might be it. I can't imagine more. Occasionally I have one of those moments with my boys, my school-age boys, where they come into the living room, they flop their legs on mine naturally because they just have that level of trust and affection for me. And we're watching TV and then my other son comes in and, you know, it's also affectionate and the dogs jump up and I'm like, this is it. This is it. That is the only moment in my life where if I'm honest with myself where I'm not like, oh, I published a book and it did well. I should be grateful. Fuck that. I want number one on the New York Times bestselling list. Oh, I met someone really cool and interesting. That must mean there's even cooler and more interesting people here. I got super lucky in investment. Well, I can imagine getting even luckier and having more. So I'm trying to figure out how you find more of those moments where you kind of think, okay, uh, I'm in the moment. I'm not trying to, I'm not trading off the present for the future, trying to get, trying to get more. And an attribute of successful people is that we're constantly trading off the present for the future, you know, gratification delay. That is a key component of a successful person. The, the tough part is, is that it's hard to get out of that, to break that mindset. I'm constantly on my computer when my boys come in and want to engage me, and I sort of engage, I'm sort of there, but I'm in my head trying to make a better life for all of us and be more relevant and more impressive to my friends and strangers. So it, it requires a certain level of mindfulness to just sort of slow down and think, okay, what's the point of all this relevance? What's the point of this economic security if you can't sit down and be in the moment and enjoy your relationships. And I've been bad at that. I'm, I'm now just okay at it. But part of it is, is acknowledging that you're constantly 
um, living in the past. I live way too much in the past. I beat up myself a lot. That's kind of what depression is in my view. It is for me. I'm constantly second guessing myself and not forgiving myself for all the various ways I've screwed up. And then I'm constantly in the future, thinking about the future, trying to figure out ways to be more successful and relevant. And, you know, the fear is that I'm going to wake up at the end of my life or be at the end and it's coming faster than I'd like. And I'll think, okay, enormous blessings, prosperity my parents could have never even imagined, people who love me, who I love immensely, born in the most amazing experiment in history, upper, lower, middle class, someone who is rationally passionate about my well-being, University of California, just all these, the internet, economic, just all of these incredible wins at my, my back, all of this prosperity, all these blessings, all these wonderful people and relationships, but I was never there. Never really lived that life, was never there. And that's my fear, is that I get to the end of my life and I recognize what an amazing life. It's too bad I didn't live it. I was never there. So I'm trying to figure out a way to be more in the moment. And this for me was an exercise in trying to figure that out. But going back to your original question, men have trouble being affectionate with others because our society has said that it means something bad. Uh, you're either a predator or gay, and that's not true at all. And two, just instinctively, men have a what used to be a healthy suspicion of each other. We, we've talked about this. Um, we talk about that middle class upbringing. Mine was in North Plainfield, New Jersey. Um, you think about success uh, as someone who was flying 300, 400,000 miles a year over much of my 40s. It wasn't there. I think that people equate success with happiness. And they're completely different things. Um, some of the most successful people can be deeply unhappy people. Um, and happy people um, define success sometimes very differently uh, than the success that I pursue, right? Materialism, uh, um, things, status, the race. And so when, when you think about happiness, it, it, it says something, I think, that if you go back to the charter document, really in the country's history, it's not the pursuit of success, it's the pursuit of happiness. Uh, you know, as man's, mankind's mission on, on earth or what people should be doing in our free society. And you talked about this noble experiment, this great experiment that we're part of. The country uh, is in trouble, through my assessment. How do you see it? Yeah, look, look the, the greatest innovation, I believe, in history isn't the iPhone, it isn't the printing press, it's the American middle class. And people like to think of it as an accident. It was a deliberate innovation that took R&D and a massive investment. It is Seven million men returned from war, and we decided to put in place these, these bold visionary and expensive investments, $500 billion infrastructure, road infrastructure act. We gave them the GI bill. We said, you, we're going to help you buy a house. We're going to help you uh, develop economic security. Quite frankly, we're going to make you much more attractive to potential mates. And we created the baby boom and we created a middle class that had connected tissue between each other and the country. And some of the best legislation in the 60s and 70s was a function of a lot of our leaders had served in the same uniform and saw them as, themselves as Americans before red and blue. 
And we took for granted that the middle class, and I think a lot of wealthy and corporations like to propagate this myth that the middle class is a self-sustaining organism. It's not. Uh, the top tax rates at the end of World War II were 92%. They claim now it's 37%. I know this firsthand. My average tax rate the last decade has been 17% because I'm now at a stage where the majority of my income comes from long-term capital gains as opposed to current income. So we are not, the middle class is, people say it's shrinking. It's kind of stayed the same, flat, slightly down. A lot of people have gone in, to the upper income. But what you have is this massive crowding of prosperity where nine and 10 incremental dollars goes to the top 1%. 0.7% of the incremental, any incremental $100 in income or growth over the last 40 years has gone to the bottom half, 0.7%. And about 90% has gone to the top 1%. So we have made a concerted effort to transfer money, not only from the middle class, uh, we talk a lot about class warfare, but I would say it's even more obvious in terms of ageism, and it's reverse ageism. And that is someone over the age of 70 40 years ago, or now someone over the age of 70 is 40 is 72% wealthier. Someone under the age of 40 is 24% less wealthy. Whether it's our tax code, the two biggest tax deductions are mortgage interest and capital gains, who owns homes and makes money from stocks, people our age, who makes money from current income and rents, younger people. We transfer a trillion and a half dollars from younger working age people to seniors who are the wealthiest generation in history. So over time, we've decided the younger people who need to repopulate and rejuvenate the middle class, we're gonna transfer wealth from them to older people because older people vote. And um, our, the demo and democracy works almost a little bit too well. And we haven't made the sort of forward-leaning investments in the middle class that we made kind of post-World War II. And without a middle class, it's very hard to have a prosperous society. China has brought 500 million people out of poverty into the middle class. That's arguably one of the greatest achievements in the history of mankind. And if you were to say, well, what country has ascended the fastest? It's really easy. Just look at what country has done the most for its middle class. And it's just inarguable that that is China. Their life expectancy the year I was born was, nine, was 47. It is, we stand here today, it's now 77. The last 10 years, life expectancy in the United States has actually gone down or even you know, the last five years, four out of the last five years, it's gone down. So we need to give up this myth that the middle class somehow just works, that, it, that if you don't invest in it, it will survive on its own. It doesn't. It's the most important thing. The middle class fights our wars. They fund our technology investments. They um, are responsible for the majority of, you know, important legislation. They populate our schools, our churches. You know, so as goes the middle class, so goes America. But unless we massively invest in it, it will it will die. It'll wither and die. So I think that's an enormous threat. And we can talk more for the reasons there. But the middle class is the best indicator of the health and prosperity of any nation. And the middle class in this country is in big trouble, as you said. 40% of Americans have $400 cash savings. A million Americans have died of opioids. Uh, the societal cracks from that you see playing out in cities like San Francisco, cities like Los Angeles. Um, you look at this moment in American history, the country is $32 trillion in debt, possibly on the edge of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, a voluntary default um, of the full faith and credit of the United States, which for all of history, uh, America's political leaders have understood uh, that America must pay its bills, 
um, it meet its obligations. Uh, so we're we're upon the edge of 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 that new horizon in that new territory. So when you when you look at this, the collapse of the middle class, and I've always viewed the middle class as foundationally the core of America's strength, the core of America's power. Um, it is part of America's miracle. And you look at the downward pressure on it really on a 40-year basis now where we where we where we are. When you look at the dawn of the age of artificial intelligence, the really passage, the hinge between one era and another, at the end of the long lifespan of the men and women who fought in that Second World War, who came home, who went to college on the GI Bill, who raised the baby boomers, uh, who built the American middle class. Most of them are gone. Uh, a few of them are left. Um, when you look out at the horizon over the next 20 years, where do, where do you see this country going? Are we in a, are we in a trough here? Uh, are we stuck in a Trump rut? you know, a lost decade of, of American life and, and history to some degree, or are we trending towards somewhere that would have been unimaginable to contemplate when you look at our 20s and our 30s in the 1990s and in the early aughts of this country? I need a bigger boat. So look, the if you if you zoom out, if you look at GDP growth, if you look at the stock market, if you look at Nobel Prize winners, if you even look at philanthropy, if you look at the money spent on social services, trying to demonstrate empathy for our brothers and sisters, America is as strong or stronger than it's ever been. On a relative basis, if we were talking about competition, there's no place uh, that, in my opinion, over the last 10, 20, 50 years, maybe with the exception of China, that is doing as well as America. We're food independent. We're energy independent. Our stock market's near all-time highs. Everyone complains about inflation. Our inflation has gone below 5%. It's continuing to go down. It's gone down 18 months in a row. That doesn't get the headlines. Gas on an inflation-adjusted basis is cheaper than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Our GDP, while not remarkable, has been more consistent than any nation in the world. No one is lining up for Russian or Chinese vaccines. Every new technology is dominated by, uh, usually by American companies. So we've had incredible prosperity. What, We've had an absence, an absence of his progress as registered by people's mood, happiness, satisfaction. Um, I think kind of the probably the leading indicator of the problem or the biggest problem or fundamental breakdown in a compact in America is that for the first time in our history, a 30-year-old man or woman isn't doing as well as his or her parents were at the age of 30. That is the fundamental handshake compact agreement you have with a society you live in, that if I work hard, I play by the rules, I'm a good citizen, my kid will do better than me. And for the first time, that isn't happening. And for the first time, more than half of people under the age of 30 aren't living with a romantic partner, they're living with a family member, a sibling, or their parents. And so you have a 30-year-old living at home or 25-year-old, and they feel constant shame and rage as they're reminded by their roommates, mom and dad, even if it's even if they don't mean to make them feel bad, that I'm not doing as well as you. And then you mix in, you know, so let's go to the culprit. And there's a lot of them. There's economic policy. I think that there's 
you know, you mentioned, we, you know, let me upset some people on the left. You mentioned some cities that are doing really poorly. It's just hard for us progressives, and I consider my centrist, I actually see you as a centrist, but it's hard not to acknowledge that the cities with the technically, theoretically, the most resources that have very progressive leadership are just really f***ed up right now. I've been in Seattle and L.A. and San Francisco in the last seven days. Unprecedented, pros unprecedented prosperity. Progressive, empathetic leadership. And it's a show. There's ten there, there are homeless encampments everywhere. And you're like, okay, something's wrong here. Our approach here is is not working. And I think, well, how do we get, where would we start to attack the root cause of the problem? And what you have is every time you convert one substance to another for economic gain, you have an externality, you have an emission. When you convert plant-based calories to meat-based meat -based calories, you get methane and deforestation. When you convert fossil fuels to petroleum, you get carbon emissions. I still think, don't think either of those are the most dangerous emission. Most people would say it's got to be carbon. I don't think it is. When you convert attention to advertising to dollars, you have an externality, you have an emission, and that emission is rage. When you and I were growing up, what used to sell advertising and capture our attention was sex. You had sex, you drink this beer and you'll be hot and young. Wear this cologne and you have a greater, or drive this car, you have a greater likelihood of a random sexual encounter. The algorithms and technology figured out that even better than sex, the way to capture your attention on a screen such that we can sell you more Nespresso and Nissan ads is rage. And the externality is polarization and rage towards your fellow man, where now Republicans, and actually 41% of Democrats are worried that their kid is going to marry a Republican. It, 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 Republicans are more worried now, and this is a sign of progress and a lack of progress. Republicans are now more worried about inter-party marriage than interracial marriage. That if, if America was a horror movie, you'd say the call is coming from inside of the House. And that is, we really, I would argue, don't have a serious external threat. You know, Russia's not going to invade us. Mexico and Canada are not a threat. China even... I would argue China, if you game theory it out, I don't think China is, wants to get into a shooting match with the United States. The threat, the call is coming from inside of the house. We don't like each other. People, the number of people who speak to their neighbor has gone down 30%. People aren't joining the Boy Scouts. People don't, people don't trust each other. We, we stand up in the state of union and scream expletives at each other. So this polarization as largely fed by technology and the emission of rage in the pursuit of profits with no regulation. We have an FDA that regulates our food. We have an SEC that regulates our banks. We finally moved in on the tobacco industry. There's nothing starting this enormous, the biggest coal fire plants in the world aren't in Kentucky or in Shenzhen. They're in Silicon Valley. And the emission we're choking on is content that figures out who you are and your beliefs and figures out the way to engage you is to enrage you by convincing you that your neighbor, because of their political affiliation or their beliefs, is your enemy. And until we figure out a way to restore a fundamental truth, we're in trouble. And that fundamental truth is the following. Americans will never have greater allies than other Americans. And we've lost that. We've lost that connective tissue. So we're not going to we're not going to be invaded. No one is economically going to best America. No one is going to invade us. We're eating ourselves from the inside out. We're going after each other. 
And some of that might be under uh, cover of dark from the GRU or the CCP weaponizing some of our platforms. And I realize how paranoid that sounds, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. But the best way to defeat an enemy is to atomize them and turn them against each other. It's what we did with Native American tribes. Don't fight them directly. Plant rumors, turn them against each other, and then come in for the cleanup. And that's what's happening now. I think the rage and lack of comity of man and the lack of appreciation for how wonderful it is to be American. Our tech leaders, some of the most blessed people in the world, don't acknowledge America. They're the first to post it. Go up and down the West Coast. You see dozens of companies that have created trillions in value. You get above Seattle and it stops. There's one north of the border. It's called Lululemon in Vancouver. You go to La Jolla, it stops. And there's one, you have to go 4,000 nautical miles before you get to Mercado Libre in Buenos Aires. And yet none of these founders want to acknowledge how fortunate they are to have been born or to start their businesses in America. They just want to shitpost it. I find it the most loyal Americans are veterans because they invested so much. And I find the most obnoxious Americans, the ones that say the government should just get out of the way and have adopted this Thatcher, Reagan-like screed that's anti-government, are our most blessed Americans, specifically tech entrepreneurs. It's obnoxious. But circling back, I think one of the root causes here is technology and some of our most talented, deep-pocketed companies are pitting us against each other. So those are the tech companies. And so we're talking Facebook, top of the list. We're talking. Yeah, look, it, it, there, there's enough to go. Go ahead. When you, when you think about, when you think about these, when you think about these tech companies, I, you're not applying this across, across the whole of the technology landscape. I think you mean a couple of companies, social media companies news companies, companies like Fox News, um, companies like Meta. Well, so you, 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 you're going to probably forget as much about this as I'm going to know. But like, news used to be 21 minutes, and it used to be a social service. People, these, these corporate broadcasters were making so much money running Tang and Chevrolet ads on the Brady Bunch and Partridge family, they thought it was in their civic interest to run 21 minutes of fact check news and nine minutes of commercials, and they lost money. And 18 minutes was boring fact check news with Jerry Dunphy, I grew up in LA, and then three minutes was point counterpoint where they brought in Bruce Hershenson and Jim Tunney to basically yell at each other. And that was the highest rated part of the 21 minute money losing news show. And Ted Turner thought, I can turn news into 24 hours. And then Rupert Murdoch came in and said, I can turn that 24 hours into those three minutes of tickling people's tribal sensors. And now when you have an economy that's focused on attention, keep people glued to the screen, the TV screen or the phone, you need a situation to have a situation room. So the constant catastrophizing and the constant enragement uh, kind of started with cable news. All that these tech companies done have done is scaled it. So when Fox runs a deep fake of Nancy Pelosi appearing to be inebriated, they get called out, and they're also subject to liability. If they spread misinformation about Dominion voting machines, they, down the road, might end up having to pay $750 million. That is a real deterrent to them coordinating and spreading lies. Now, you might not stop it, but it deters it. By the time they put on their shoes, social media has ran that video around the world several hundred million times. We're focused on cable news. 
because we know the personalities. But, you know, three million people watch the most popular shows on Fox. A billion and a half people log into Meta every day. So one is a dumpster fire. The other is a nuclear mushroom cloud. But it did start on cable news. It still exists on cable news. There's profit incentive around rage and polarization. But the online folks, specifically Meta, Google, Twitter, have taken it to an absolutely new level. And then, you know, we haven't even began to talk about uh, teen depression. I know you have kids. We've also found that if we can tap into people's insecurities when they're young, that it keeps them glued to their phone. And we've also found that young people um, are experience, you know, have a lot of friends, but they're not experiencing friendship. They get go down rabbit holes. They don't have the maturity to modulate, and they can get very depressed very fast. Since social went on mobile, we've just seen self-harm and teen depression absolutely explode. And these companies engage in delay and obfuscation uh, such that they avoid any regulation. And so where do we end up? We end up with America where we talked about the middle class is struggling. We have polarization. We don't trust each other. We don't like each other very much. We see each other as our as our enemies, which is ridiculous. And we literally, we literally have the most, anyone who has kids knows they have the world of work, they have the world of friends, and then they have their world of kids. Something comes off of the tracks with one of your kids, the whole world shrinks to that kid. And to, to think that the most prosperous people in the world, the companies who have the most shareholder value, are directly linked to an increase in teen depression means that corporate America has just lost the script. There's just no excuse. Do not pass go. In my view, people need to go to jail. And anyone who has had a teen in their house, who is presented with their full self 24 by 7, and has their kid fall to the addictive dark psychological techniques that these companies purposefully employ and hear this bullshit that they're age gating, which they are not doing, and follows the case of Molly Richards here in the United Kingdom, where a 14-year-old girl uh, gets depressed and bullied, has suicidal ideation, and then the algorithms pick up on that and send her an email that says verbatim, here are some images on suicide we thought you might find interesting and sends her images of nooses, pills, and razors, and then that night kills herself. Someone needs to go to jail. Someone needs to go to jail. And instead, we have a Washington that's been weaponized and idolizes the dollar and innovators, and these companies continue to get away with it, and they'll pay the $1.2 billion fine, which is a parking ticket for them, and we end up we end up with a nation that continues to experience record levels of depression and record levels of polarization. These problems are fixable. That's the good news. We just have to hold these firms to the same account we have held every other industry eventually in America. Thank you for watching. Make sure you subscribe to our channel so you never miss a video. Also, for more content just like this, please consider joining our warning premium community. You can find out more in the description below. When you look at a theme that you're talking about, which is really this concept that there's one set of rules for people at the top, different set of rules for everyone else. Reading in the Wall Street Journal, CEO of Monsanto, uh, public company, uh, all in last year, made $414 million in American money. It was a public company CEO. What what do you do about that? What can you do about that? 
because I think that this is very deeply linked to these issues that you're talking about. Washington is awash in a level of money, foreign money, Saudi money, uh, Chinese money, uh, tech money, at a, at a level that that is unprecedented in the whole sweep of American of American history. When, when you look at the country, 330 million of us, what, what has always been true about America, almost providentially, is that it has produced the right leaders at the right moment of time, seemingly almost out of nowhere. For example, Dwight Eisenhower was an Army Lieutenant Colonel in 1939 who hadn't been promoted in 13 years. Um, but it produces the right leaders at the right moment in time. Are you optimistic that a new generation of leaders steps up? Do you see anybody out there who has the capacity to take on, tackle these issues in a way that is truthful, honest, direct, that starts to make the turn in the pull towards better? Because really what you're talking about is better is getting out of this rut, and we talk about the politics of that in a minute. So there's two things there, the, the CEO compensation and then the notion of, you know, can we come together and rally behind a, a specific leader? With respect to the former, I think, I, I'm involved in a lot of CEO compensation. I've served on seven public company boards, probably about two dozen private company boards, and compensation is the most difficult thing. And the, what you have is in the last... 40, 50 years, CEO compensation has gone from about 36 times the average worker salary to about 300. I bet it's going to hit 400 soon. And you think, well, how did that happen? What happens is on the board, there's a compensation committee that decides the compensation of the CEO. And we hire uh, Towers Perrin, I think is the consulting firm that's kind of locked up the compensation industry. And they do a survey. And we pay them because board members don't like to actually do work. And they come back and say, all right, this is a a chemical, chemicals company, Monsanto, and fertilizer company that does $22 billion in industries of this size in this environment give their CEOs this much in current comp and this much in stock. And they go from zero to 100 and 50 is average. And you think, well, Bob's working really hard or Lisa's amazing. And to become a CEO, you have to be, in addition to a lot of things, you have to be one thing and that is really likable. And these people are all the fraternity or sorority rush chairman. They become friends with the board, and you can't help but not like them. And also, they're generally speaking good people. And so when the compensation consultants come back and say, this would be purely average, you're like, well, we're not going to pay Bob average. We're going to give him a little above, like 60. You think, well, that's no big deal. But if you're paying Bob 20% above the average that means every three and a half years, because then the consultants go out and look at a new data set. That means every three and a half years, CEO compensation is doubling. And when you're the board, you want to find the right guy or gal, and the right guy or gal is not going to have a eulogy at their wedding, at their funeral saying, he turned down a $50 million comp package to just take $30 million because he was worried about CEO pay. No one's going to disarm unilaterally. So capitalism is a function of people's self-interest. And I don't blame them, and I don't know if there's anything offhand you can do about CEO compensation. Capitalism 
is about people making or trying to make a shit ton of money. I don't begrudge the CEOs. I can understand how the boards award this. What I think needs to happen is that there's no reason that we shouldn't have a progressive tax structure. I think anyone making over $100 million should pay a fairly extraordinary tax rate or at a minimum pay the same as somebody, the CFO who's working for them. Because the myth around our tax policy is that, you know, the narrative is always that the poor get screwed. If you look at the lower and middle income, their taxes have gone up on consumption and sales tax, but their federal income tax has largely stayed the same. The bottom half of America pays very little federal income tax. You know, they don't have a lot. Who really gets screwed in our tax code over the last 50 years are what I refer to as the workhorses. And that is people that make between, call it, 200 grand and a million dollars a year. Mom's a partner in a law firm. She's a baller. She's worked her ass off. She got the right certification. She's made partner, makes 600 grand. Dad's a chiropractor, started his own chiropractic clinic, works his ass off, has a staff, makes 220 grand a year. They make 820 grand a year. In order to make that kind of money, they probably have to live in a big city, most likely in a blue state. They're probably paying a tax rate of 48 to 52%. They're paying half their money. They're, and that's just extraordinary. Now, if dad or mom is one of those people that's able to start a series of you know, really talented, takes huge risks, maybe dad has money, borrows money, rolls up a bunch of chiropractic clinics, builds a network of 30 wellness centers, and then sells it for $30 million, his tax rate plummets. And then he can take that money and then he can invest it in stocks. And the capital gains from that are taxed at a much lower rate. I've been working as a consultant my whole life, current income. Until the age of 40, I paid between 35 and 45% tax rate. Once I sold the company and I had a basic capital to start investing, I made the jump to light speed, could start investing in real estate, could hire really really talented people to navigate the tax code, which has gone from 400 pages to 4,000, and my tax rate plummeted. So what we've done in America is we've said, if you're talented enough to get the gold medal, and let's be, let's be serious, they're not bad people and they're exceptionally talented, but if you get to the gold medal, we're going to take the bronze and the silver away from anybody else. Your tax rate plummets once you get to the 99th percentile. So can we do anything about CO compensation? I'm at a loss as to how you limit it, but they shouldn't be paying 17 or 18% tax rates. They should be paying 70% tax rates. So I believe in a progressive tax structure. It needs to be restored. We have five of the 100 biggest companies in America paid a tax rate of zero last year. FedEx, Nike, Amazon paid no taxes because what has happened is everyone complains about tax rates. They're missing, they're missing the plot. It's not tax rates. It's the tax code. We need 23% of GDP to operate our country. If you funded 2% of that with debt, you need 21%. You'd effectively need an effective tax rate of 21% for everyone. If all corporations and all people making over a million dollars paid 30% tax rate, everyone else would probably pay somewhere between 10 and 15. And I'll sign up for that, said pretty much everybody. But we've weaponized the tax code and we hire rich people have if you understand how to navigate by starlight, you want to run races at night. And so they've figured out a way to make the tax code so complex and insert so many loopholes that when I start a business and sell it for $160 million, which I did five years ago, incredibly blessed, worked my ass off, I deserve it. 
But then a sophisticated tax lawyer calls me and says, guess what? You qualify for QSB. The first $10 million is tax-free. The first $10 million is tax-free? And you think we're not screwing the middle class? And then I'll say, okay, uh, that just doesn't make any sense. And the first thing people say is, well, Scott, then if you're such a great guy, send it to the government. I want to be clear. I'm not going to disarm unilaterally. I will do whatever is best for me and my family. I will take it tax-free. But the and then and then the go-to amongst people will say, "Well, well this, is, not this is a this is a political issue, right? Though that it's not that you voluntarily pay taxes. It's not a it's not a charity. The government needs the money that it needs to to operate. The government needs to needs to be collected fairly, and so you know, people are gonna people are gonna follow the law on this. What I think this does." It eviscerates trust. When, when you say Amazon, um, people equate that with Jeff Bezos, and it's not entirely fair because we're not talking about personal taxes, but they look at the guy who founded the company that doesn't pay any taxes, who's out on a $500 million yacht. $500 million, half a billion dollars. And so your average person looks at that when you have a political class that tells them constantly nothing is on the level. It's you against this person. You have a rage industry monetized to billions of dollars, and then the country makes a decision when it comes to election time, not on the basis of even what candidate they like better, but through the prism of what side is going to do the most damage to me and then they vote for they vote for the other one we're in this punitive era of american politics where one faction weaponizes their vote uh to do harm at some form to the other group or right to protect themselves from the group right that is that is that is doing that is doing harm to them i wanted to like bring it back what what do you say Right as a as a leader, right to the country to break us out of this to break us out of this vicious circle that we that we seem that we seem to be in, where we seem to be devouring uh, each other, uh, we seem to be tearing at the fabric, the idea, the ideals of the country, as you said. At this moment, when if you had a hundred dollars to invest somewhere in the world, you would certainly invest it here against all of the other places. So there's it, it, Democrats will blame the system. Republicans will talk about personal accountability, and I'll, I'll I'll try and talk about some ideas for both. Let's start with personal accountability. Um, you are where you pay attention. I'm addicted to Twitter. One, because I have an addiction. I'm desperate for other people's affirmation. So I constantly go on Twitter to get some sort of low-calorie affirmation from total strangers. And it's pathetic, and I'm addicted to it, but at least I'm aware of it. But spending so much time on Twitter, I became like Twitter. I became terse. I became looking for opportunities to shame other people, play guardians of gotcha, make a caricature of other people's comments, and then weigh in and press on the soft tissue, which the algorithm likes. And I'd get a ton of likes. And boy, didn't I feel good about myself. I have a personal responsibility to take the temperature down and start doing what my colleague Jonathan Hyde at NYU suggests, and that is 
take people's gestures with the intention they were meant. And so if someone says something stupid or off color or is accidentally unkind, show some grace. I don't need to, I've lived my whole life that everybody has to show me the same level of respect at kind of net zero, or I get back in their face, or I speed up if they cut me off and I honk at them. Not recognizing maybe that person's dealing with a kid who has diabetes, not recognizing that maybe a person lost their job. So I am trying very hard to take the temperature down and show more grace in a world where as a quote unquote public figure or author or thought leader, it pays for me to play, to get more and more gardens, guardians of gotcha pins, like assume the best of people. So that's personal responsibility. I'm trying really hard to raise empathetic kids who are good citizens who know how to work and recognize that their greatest blessing is that their success, a lot of their success is not their fault. That being born in America puts them in the top decile from day one, and they have an obligation to reinvest back in America. Now let's talk about public policy on the macro level. I think we're going to have to hold social media companies accountable for the damage they are doing. I think we need national service. Uh, I think we need young people to have an opportunity to meet other kids or other young adults from different um, income, different ethnicities, different sexual orientations, and recognize that we're all Americans. And they're going to find out from the get-go that that person who I would have never had any contact with, that is from a totally different background than me, uh, uh, doing something in the agency of something bigger than me, and that is our nation, we need to get back to that. So I'm a big fan of national service. On a fiscal and monetary or, or tax policy, we need to start reinvesting in young people. Young people aren't having kids, not because they don't want them, but because they can't afford them. They have less opportunity than our generation had, and a lot of it is an absolutely concerted decision. People, the entrenched incumbents will say it's about network effects and globalization. Bullshit. We have consciously decided to transfer money from young people to old people or uh, inflate our economy using the credit card of our kids and our grandkids. There are economic policies where we need to restore, give young people more opportunity. We need a tax code that's enforced. We need a progressive tax structure. We need national service. We need to have an honest conversation around young men who are struggling in our country, four times more likely to be addicted, three times more likely to kill themselves, 12 times more likely to be incarcerated, and recognize that compassion is not a zero-sum game. Civil rights did not hurt white people. Gay marriage did not hurt heteronormative marriage. And we need to have more compassion for young men who are falling further faster than any demographic group, despite the fact that their father and their grandfather may have had unwarranted blessings that is not their fault. And we need programs, vocational programs, red shirts, start them a year later in school, more college freshman seats, more vocational certification to try and level up young people such that they have more opportunities. And quite frankly, the young men have more on-ramps into the middle class. I think there's a ton of things that, you know, the bad news is these problems are huge. The good news is they are absolutely fixable. When you look at this, this era, Franklin Roosevelt, and I, I've always talked about Franklin Roosevelt. I think he is the most important figure of the 20th century for the good. He's the principal architect of the world that we live in. And Roosevelt is good friends with the Canadian Prime Minister, Mackenzie King. Like Churchill, he would come, he would stay for weeks at a time in the White House. 
spend long evenings talking to FDR and Kane would always return to his room and take copious notes. And he recalls this night with FDR where FDR lays out the UN Declaration of Human Rights, the United Nations, free trade, the end of the colonial system, colonial era, really the world in its contours that is our modern post-World War II era. And FDR says to Mackenzie King that his aspiration isn't that this will last forever because nothing does. He says that he hopes that it will endure this American-led system for as long as everybody who is alive on the day the war is won is still alive. And so the youngest of those people uh, are my parents' age. Uh, they're 77, they're 78 years old, and we have come to the end of that era um, and to a hinge of history where the United States is moving into a new era of competition with China, um, technology, all of the advantages that the country has had over these last 80 years in this moment of time right we're seeing we're seeing the the end right of that of that runway when you look ahead over the next over the next 20 years in this country where do you see america 20 years from now where do you see the american middle class where do you see the american the american worker where do you see the United States in the community of nations in the global competition on our current trajectory. Are you are you generally optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Um, it's weird. I think I think I'm becoming. I've gone from a glass half empty to a glass half full, and that is the constant catastrophizing that pays and media is, in my opinion, overdone. I do think that, I mean, if you look at the last couple of years in Congress, despite the polarization, it's actually been a relatively productive con Congress. You know, the infrastructure bill, climate change. I mean, there really, it, it, there has been some productivity, bipartisan productivity. I think the immunities are kicking in. I think people are no longer uh, fooled by these weapons of mass distraction, a, a really charismatic president talking about gender balance and saying, look over here, don't look at teen depression. I think we are figuring out, um, we're getting more serious about climate change. I think election deniers are, are losing their elections. I do think some immunities are kicking in. The best chart in my book is a chart showing the percentage of time people are donating to people they will never meet. And it's up dramatically in every region of the world. So more people in more regions are planting trees the shade of which they will not live under. We have huge problems, but I'm actually quite optimistic. I'm, I actually think AI is going to be a net positive for society. I think it's going to offer incredible health care. I think it's going to disrupt the most disruptable industry in history, and that is U.S. health care, where one in five or four in five Americans are unhappy with their health care. We spend $12,000 per citizen. Australia spends 5000 and yet our life expectancy has gone down. So I'm an optimist. I, I spent a bunch of time on this thing called Summit at Sea, which people call Learning Man. It's a lot of young people. I work, the median age of the people I work with at my media company, Property Media, is 24. I am really impressed with not only how talented they are, but how socially aware they are. 
And I hope that with things like open primaries and ranked choice voting, voting, we will move away from minority rule and have majority rule. Because I do think the majority of Americans, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit freaked out about some of that cruelty, the culture of cruelty that has emerged in our politics. But I do think it's extremist minority rule. And I think people are opening their eyes to moderates again, or at least I'm being hopeful. But I think that the generosity uh, uh, that Americans usually largely reflect, the massive innovation, the progress, I'm hopeful that over the next 20 years that we're having a gag reflex off of this culture of cruelty, this idolatry of the dollar and innovators, and more importantly, really moving back from this incredible lack of masculinity demonstrated by Trump and Musk who don't use their power to protect others but to bully them and diminish them. I think that is the exact opposite. I think that is a playbook or a handbook in how to raise, not raise young men. And I think people are starting to figure this out. I think we're starting to talk more openly about depression and mental health. And uh, if you think about AI as a threat, uh, the catastrophizing is in full swing. I'm more optimistic, but we own it. Americans are kind of leading in it. So I, I'm, I'm actually for the first time in a while, fairly optimistic that we, I don't want to say we needed to hit rock bottom, but, you know, Trump is probably going to be the nominee. And I'm convinced, and I'm curious what you think. I think he's going to lose again. And I think people who go to this election denial we weirdness are going to lose again. And I think, um, um, I, you know, I'm sort of optimistic, but what I will say is that after I live living in London, you know, <laughs> People talk about Brexit, and it was the stupidest thing they could have done. They're not growing. They're the only they're the only European country that hasn't grown in five years. But they don't even talk about choice. They have no time or energy to talk about bathrooms or demonizing trans people. They don't even talk about an assault weapons ban because they had a mass shooting in 1997, so they outlawed assault weapons and made people register weapons. And we haven't had a mass shooting here at a school in 26 years. And you do look back on America and think there's some basics we're getting wrong. And I apologize for being all over the map. I do think that young people, I'd like to think, are starting to get it and that the immunities are kicking in. When, when, you, look at, when you look at American history, the presidents that we grew up with, Nixon, LBJ, Jimmy Carter, George Bush, Ronald Reagan, you know, these presidents, Reagan was born in 1911, Nixon 1913, George Herbert Walker Bush and Jimmy Carter 1924, LBJ 1908, um, John F. Kennedy 1917, the first president born in the 20th century, um, Eisenhower, uh, FDR, all of these people, you know, we think of that leadership from the First World War, those people were born uh, mostly uh, between the early 1880s, you know, through the 1890s. Um, the baby boomer generation that that starts with Bill Clinton in 1992 um, and goes through Donald Trump, through Joe Biden, who's outside that baby boomer generation, collectively, from the Bill Clinton era from 1992, generationally, how do you assess the baby boomers as having done as a as a generation of political leaders in the in the United States? I think it's a different question when you look at them and score them as a generation through innovation, 
through the through the economy, so on and so forth. But as a but as a generation of political leadership from '92 through right now, because this will certainly be the last baby boomer election. It's a, it's inconceivable that there will be one beyond this. Now, I've also been saying that we're upon the last baby boomer election since 2020. So, you know, I could I could be wrong on that. So, I've never felt like it's it's fair. I don't have the skills to compare one generation to another. The the thing I would say about I think we've had some remarkably good presidents or good people as president of a, during my lifetime. Even even W, I look at W, he's going to go down as the first ballot Hall of Famer for uh, c- catastrophic geopolitical decisions with what was probably one of the worst decisions since World War II, and that is to go into Iraq. But I think he was a good man. I, I think he generally had empathy for other people. Um, and then, and then he saved, he's George Bush, and progressives don't like to hear this, but George Bush, directly responsible. Um, for saving over a million African lives, at least um, from AIDS with uh, PEPFAR, President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief in Africa. Um, so yeah, he's a good and honorable man and made a catastrophic decision. Look, and when I, what I do think when we were talking about looking for leaders, the, the presidents I admire, Obama, Kennedy, uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Clinton. Um, they were three of the five youngest presidents. I, I, what I would say, I just think we need more youth. The average age of Americans is 38. The average age of our elected leaders is 64. And so when we pass these heinous anti-choice laws where we force a woman in Florida to carry an a ch- a unborn child or a fetus with Potter syndrome, knowing the kid's going to be delivered and then die a pretty gruesome death, that's just torturing young people. That's torturing women. And I don't think, I think if we had more young people uh, in office, they, that just wouldn't happen. And I think if we had more moderates. So we've got a minority rule where, you know, Congress is beginning to look like a cross between the Golden Girls and the Walking Dead. I don't think we should have a president running for office that's going to be 86 the last time a Marine One leaves the West Lawn. And the reason we're going to vote for him and I'm going to raise money for him is because his number one attribute is that he has common sense, he's a good man, and he's the best option to beat someone who engages in the culture of cruelty, who's just this weirdo. And I'm like, can we do better than that? So I think there's a decent chance someone is going to emerge, and usually someone does, America's great at producing leaders, that's younger that we haven't even heard of. But I think we need a lot more youth and one, youth has a better command of technology. I'm an ageist. People just have, young people just have an easier time. The neuroplasticity of their brain, figuring out new technology. Technology is playing a bigger role in our society. And we have a non-representative government. We have people who are too old. So what do you know? Social Security has its largest cost of living adjustment in history, but the child tax credit gets cut out of the infrastructure bill because what do you know? There aren't that many new mothers in Congress. So I don't know if I if I could summarize the difference between the generations. What I am a big believer in is that we need more young people uh, in government. Our, our government has become too senior, uh, just become too old. And I think that I feel it myself. I'm just, I, I hate to admit it, at 58, I feel as if I'm becoming a little bit out of touch. I purposely try to stay engaged. I read a ton of media. I try and surround myself with young people. But there's just certain issues I'm out of touch with. 
And I feel like we have a government that's become, if you will, out of touch with the real issues facing the majority of young people. Well, last thing I want to ask you about, and you raised this with Donald Trump. Um, he is, and I say this to somebody who grew up in New Jersey, I, I remember distinctly age 10 or 11, the year is 1981, maybe 1982. North Plainfield, New Jersey, big box television, Channel 7, Bill Butel, Eyewitness News, and Trump was on television. And my father looks at me, he goes, he goes, you see that fucking guy? Yeah, yeah. He goes, don't ever be like that fucking guy. Um, now, he goes on to vote for him eventually. It's an amazing which is an amazing thing. But but Donald Trump was everything that you didn't want to be, um, at least in my household. How is it that, that so many men look at the cruelty, as you pointed out, look at the bullying, look at the nastiness, look at the grievance, the scapegoat, and see strength as opposed to weakness. I think Donald Trump's appeal is that not so much that he appeals to Republicans, but that the right just sees us on the left as being crazy. I think on the left, we have to take some responsibility for sticking our chin out. And that is a lot of our politics were more about airing, airing petty grievances and the inability to face adult realities and virtue signal after we made our money. And I think that so many people feel left behind by this bullshit virtue signaling with a Democratic Party that was trying to figure out what offends us as opposed to what affects us, and weren't focused on the right thing, that they love a guy that comes in and just says, F you, and is cruel and weird. I don't think Republicans are in love with Trump. I think they're in love with a guy who just inflames the other side, who they think have totally lost touch with regular people. And they conflate cruelty with masculinity and they think he's rich the reality is if he had taken his inheritance and just put it in an index fund he'd have more money than he does now and i think a lot about young men and uh, i'm writing my next book's going to be on masculinity i think masculinity is a wonderful thing and, and should be embraced but we just need to redefine it and loosely speaking it distills down to a couple things for me and that is self-reliance being physically fit emotionally strong, figuring out a way to make be economically and emotionally viable such that you can protect and advocate for others. And there is nothing less masculine than sexually assaulting or being accused of sexually assaulting 29 people. There's nothing less masculine than mocking this, the disabled. This is the exact definition of what it means or doesn't mean to be a man. And I think we need to educate people that this is not a hero, this is not a man, this is a deeply insecure, flawed person that is bringing out the worst in people. And we need to embrace a new form of masculinity. And by the way, masculinity is a social construct. A lot of women demonstrate fantastic masculinity, and a lot of men demonstrate wonderful femininity. But we need to, we need to get away from this culture of cruelty, and the Democratic side needs to propose a leader that is not going to just talk about petty grievances or, or refuse to face the adult realities that kind of defines a lot of the far left right now. We stuck our chin out. We had it coming. And we need to move back to the center and start thinking about where America really is at, and that is somewhere in the middle. 
but yeah, this we need to move away from these this culture of toxicity and cruelty. It's just it's tearing us apart. We'll leave it there. Professor Scott Galloway, one of the most interesting people you could ever spend an hour with. Thank you very much, Scott. Always good to be with you, Steve. Thanks for your good work.